And now, Truth of Lies. Episode 5, The Inquest. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to Truth of Lies. My name is Tony Horn. I'm a ghostwriter and podcaster in Lancashire, England. In the northeast of the country, in East Boldham, here is Julie Phillips, widow to Michael Phillips, whose stories and hollies we are telling. When we finished up last time, we had spoken heavily about the funeral, uh, the two funerals, nearly, uh, those who attended and those who didn't. And remember, we're in February 2002 here. The first thing that is obvious and probably accentuated, I would think, by military life is that when the funeral has taken place, you witness army life going back to normal and that's probably not something that you can address for a very long time or indeed ever. No, I stayed. I didn't stay on camp for long. I moved back up north. So considering they did put me rent up the day Michael died, <laughs> apparently it was an error, massive error on their behalf. But that's what they did. You always hit me with stuff that I've <laughs> you've never told me. And, uh <laughs> Um, I got a letter. I got a letter literally dated 28th of January 2002. And it was from, I think it was DHS. Sure, it was DHS, something housing, army housing, that they were putting there. You got subsidised rent for like living in a married quarter. And obviously, from the day he died, they decided to put it up. So let me try and understand that. People do make mistakes. Some people lack class and tact. But was that just part of a round of rent rises going around at the time? Or was it something to do with, as you alluded to there, married allowance? And, well, technically then we're going to slash that because there's only one of you, although you're still married. Yeah, it wasn't. didn't go to everybody. It just went to me. Wow. Wow. <laughs> How did you react to that? I'm not going to swear on here. Did we really see the crazy woman then? Probably saw us a few times, crazy woman. I mean, did obviously you... I went mental. I just said the heartless bastards. And, and obviously they panicked. I think the family's officer went and looked into it and had a massive apology from them. But that was besides the point, you know what I mean? It was this official letter stating that I had to pay full rent um, from the day he died. <laughs> As I understand that then, that is ruthless military heartless machine moving administration on at a pace which lacks sensitivity and you know you can draw conclusions about military life that if there's one place perhaps other than the medical world where you will see death in amongst your colleagues and you can 
become desensitized. You can become immune because it goes with the territory. And I'm obviously referring to fallen in combat more so than a road traffic accident. They should equally, though, have enough experience of learning to deal with matters with sensitivity. I'm stunned that they would even do that. It's strange. Some people do get a kick out of doing things like this. I mean, my accountant is brilliant, but he used to send me a letter every year, which I would receive roughly on New Year's Eve because of the post, and double whammy, it was dated Christmas Eve. And I thought, are you just trying to cheer me up here or what? You know, so I get it on New Year's Eve, and I know you've sent it on Christmas Eve. You know, last thing, let's just before we go out of the office, let's just ping that over. But we spoke about it, and we laughed about it, and they're great people who have my best interests at heart. This, however, is cold calculated i think see after the funeral i hated it i hated i hated the camp i hated i hated everything so i didn't stay around i mean i know they say oh you don't have to move out you know you can take as long as you want but who wants to stay who wants to stay in a place where it was like living in a fishbowl well there's that isn't there all eyes on you for a while however patriotic you are however much or little you subscribe to i want to serve my country that is a dream that you, as a partner, and Michael can buy into. But when that dream becomes a nightmare like this, you probably start to break down in your mind characters around you, superficial behavior, people grandiosing or career ladder climbing, and perhaps an insincerity too. You you overnight can suddenly not be part of that world and probably can see areas where emotions fall between resentment and irritation i suppose people mm. that offered you support verbally it's a struggle to see them go about their daily business said they will always be there for us i've got the letters you know now and in the future anything you and holly need or want as soon as the funeral was over and still michael's commanding officer didn't come to see me still um, What's the relationship with the family's officer? They should, I think we made this point very, very early on. I've certainly made it on another podcast, but the moment in which they engage with you, the beginning of the story is actually, well, I won't say the least of your troubles, but you should need somebody in that role consistently over a period of time. And certainly certainly in that transition to normal life resuming after the funeral. So were they absent without leave or still knocking at the door? Kind of saw him briefly. Not, he wasn't there. Like, unless I needed him, they just stopped coming. Literally, like, nobody came. Nobody came. I think as soon as they got wind that I'd got a solicitor involved. I'm not saying they were there 100% for us anyway from the beginning. I'm not saying the family's officer did anything wrong. He came to my door and he told us about Michael and he did do the job. He tried to do the job. Bearing in mind, he'd never done it before. He'd never dealt with a military, an army widow. It was his first time. But as soon as I got a solicitor, you could see nobody came. His commanding officer still didn't come to visit me. Nobody did. They didn't like it. It's interesting because 
whilst details should remain confidential, I'm referring to the families of those who've fallen that we've seen repatriated in Royal Wooden Bassett near Swindon in Wiltshire, etc., etc. There must be there must be an expectation within Michael's employers that they are going to have to be transparent with truth and probably compensate for every single individual. Now, Julie made the point last time that we think the rules engaging solicitors in terms of remuneration have, have changed and some people can't afford to bring a case, but it shouldn't be. We know why they do this. It's disappointing that information is withheld and that you have to fight to get it and you have to spend years to receive compensation in a decent world. And after all, is that not what the army is supposed to present and protect? These things should be speedier. And it's a strange thing about a lie or an untruth that people are sometimes more comfortable churning them out. And of course, then one untruth leads to another, as we've already seen. And then years later, when you piece together all the untruths, you're so far from the, the reality. But if somebody had the nous to sit down and go, do you know what? We just better tell the truth about this. There was an accident. The vehicle wasn't roadworthy. We are negligent. But nobody ever operates like that, do they? No. Well, I mean, I don't know what it's like now, you know, with all the Iraq and Afghan deaths. I'm hoping that they've got better at it. You would but think that they would have a polished and well-oiled system, given the conflict that we have been involved in would escalate the issue. Probably bearing in mind, a family's officer probably has never done that job before. He's a family's officer, but he's probably has never dealt with death and have to go to the family and deal with the aftermath and all the stick from it and the questions. And If you were applying for that job, what's the one thing that you would put down as a certainty at some point in your career dealing with death? Well, if we Google inquest Corporal Michael Phillips, the first thing that I find is an article from the Newcastle-upon-Tyne paper, Evening Chronicle, strangely updated a decade later there can be many reasons for that from a comma to an inaccuracy the article leads with relatives of a tyneside soldier see i don't like the way journalists do that why can't they name him why they do name him in the article but why do they have to be so detached relatives of a tyneside soldier he's a person he's not is not a number. Relatives of a Tyneside soldier killed in a car smash. Sounds like it's a video game, you know. Relatives of a Tyneside soldier killed in a car smash weeks after his baby was born are to finally find out what happened. So this is now the spring of 2003. So a few questions here, Julie. Um, that's over a year on, and... Does your solicitor or yourself have any fresh information, insight before that inquest? Has anything emerged or has nothing emerged? I don't think much. I think only, only obviously, what I, what I knew from speaking to the driver, Adam, he did refuse to go to the inquest. There was a hoo-ha about that. 
I did try, I contacted him, I spoke to his wife, he had been married by this time, didn't go down too well, said he said he was refusing to go. Remember, like, an inquest isn't a court of law, it's not to proportion blame on anybody, it's really to find out the cause of death. Yeah, that's a really good point that, I'll just pick that up in a second, and the comparison with the court of law is a smart one, because, well, I have been in a situation where I have been asked to give evidence in a, in a court of law, and... My understanding is that you can't refuse if you are on the list of witnesses, etc., etc. But you would think that if what I've said there is true, then that would also apply to an inquest, even though it's not a court of law. I think Mr. Lister said he had to go. He, he, he would have had to have gone. Now, and I'm not 100% sure, I'm maybe 99% sure, positive that the other one, the other guy who survived, didn't go. I'm positive. Whoever went or didn't go, we don't need to spell out why somebody that was there wouldn't attend. And that's not implying any guilt or anything. It's just simple to understand. The other thing there to pick up on, and you did allude to it, and I think it's important to set that out again, when you are preparing to go for an inquest, and this will be the first time that you've done this, I think you get briefed as to what your expectations should be. Mm-hmm. My only experience of an inquest, well, essentially left me feeling that it was a window dressing and box ticking exercise. And as you say, it's not going to change anything and you probably aren't really going to learn anything, are you? It's just, we're going to just stamp that off cause of yeah. death mm-hmm. and your only hope i suppose is that somebody who might make a statement or be interviewed that's not the right word i don't even know if that happens at an inquest occasionally people can run away with themselves and let something slip but essentially you went to that knowing that you'd be told the cause of death and blame would not be attributed that's important and so therefore you learned nothing no I mean, people probably Google now and say, you know, when, you know, when I Googled, it says cause of death. They were killed by not wearing seatbelts. And that really, I can't even describe how I feel about that. Like, I can feel myself getting, like, really, really angry. Because people only know, oh, they were in a road traffic collision in Sierra Leone. They weren't wearing the seatbelts. But the, what they don't know is everything that went on around it, hence why we're doing this podcast now. I think that's what like really annoys me. It wasn't just, I know papers obviously, but that's what they've put, weren't wearing the seatbelts. Trying to blame them. Yeah, and I just think like, not the case, it's not the case at all, and that's why I did what I did, and that's why it took us nearly nine years. Well, um... Julie described in an earlier episode what she understands to have happened. And look, let's look at a couple of places where that argument about not wearing seatbelts falls flat. Two people, Julie, survived that crash? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the lottery of life. And they survived without wearing a seatbelt. The other is that, and I think we've become very good at this as a society, what I call blame distribution. A lot of this has to do with deflection. If Michael not wearing a seatbelt is 
a relevant detail. It is only so after the fact that the vehicle was faulty. So we wouldn't be talking about seatbelts if the vehicle didn't have a case to answer. And I know this won't sit comfortably with people, but I would imagine time and time again, they often, in those vehicles, in a military capacity, didn't wear seatbelts. But it's a detail that you can get lost on because the key detail is what would ultimately emerge that the vehicle was faulty. And if you do Google and find that, which, by the way, I haven't found, so you, I'm working on the basis that you know everything that's out there in terms of mm-hmm. clickbait. Unfortunately, that's there's a lot of that that goes on now, isn't there? People keen to publish, people keen to get you to click, and uh, we'll worry about the actual facts later. As long as people understand that that was a, a vehicle that wasn't roadworthy, then unless they're short on intellect, the seatbelt argument won't come to the fore. So at the inquest, and I know you mentioned this before, uh, this is really your first engagement with James's family. So James, who also we lost in that. His dad. His dad was there. Previously, when you spoke about your brief engagement with him, I, I felt that you weren't on the same side, even though clearly you were. It felt like you were fighting for answers and... Uh, that James's family accepted the narrative that they've been given. Did you spend much time with them around the inquest? Just outside. I think outside when I went for a cigarette. I don't know whether he was having a cigarette outside. I introduced myself very briefly. Spoke. He didn't really want to know. I don't. I don't know what the MOD told him. I don't know. You know, they must have had a family's officer. You don't know what they were told. I. I, I don't. I don't know. I can't. I can't comment anything else on that because I, I just don't know. Well, when we trace back the story, and of course we heard how Julie couldn't find Michael's body for four days and the confusion of the airports or airfields into which James and Michael were returned to the UK. Do you have any knowledge that, that James's body was in the same place as Michael's or do you simply not know? Do you, do you know if the family had the same struggle as you did to find out exactly where their loved one was? I don't know because we didn't have any contact with them. I know Michael's family wanted to send a card, a condolence card, that were told advised not to. I don't know why she asked for an address to send one they wouldn't give. We never met them. And I know that, I'm sure that his family were on the camp. I think it was his dad because I think his mum lived in abroad somewhere. I think that's where James was from originally. And I think his dad was from London, somewhere in London. And and he was on the camp. Somebody had, you know, people like the gossip, tell you what you want to know. And and I'm I'm sure that Michael's family and Michael's mum had asked to go and see him and said that he didn't want to meet us. What seems very clear to me, and we'll show the respect to James's family that we simply just don't know what they were thinking or what they've been told. What seems very clear to me, and I'll put this very vaguely, you both had a different experience with the family, the family's officer. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to work out in my head if the family's officer should 
be the same person for both of you or if we assign one family's officer to one family because everybody's an individual and everybody's different and everybody deserves that respect i honestly don't know i think you could partly answer that question if you were repatriating 20 fallen servicemen who'd come back from Afghanistan at the same time. I imagine there aren't too many of these positions around, but I repeat, I think it's fair to say that you, Julie, had a different experience to James's family with the family's officer. And some of that might well be in tone because obviously you've found out early that something is not right and you've gone over and you've recorded and there's that message on your voicemail which turned out to not be relevant but there's a more panicky engagement from the family's officer towards you than you would certainly expect from someone in that position and i can only put that down to the fact that you were taking them on Hmm. People grieve differently, but you took them on out of anger and out of justice. Truth of lies. So tell people what happens at an inquest. How long does it last? Do you get to speak? Do you uh, draw on anybody in particular's opinion? Who does give evidence? Uh, an inquest is the coroner still on holiday it doesn't last very long it's just really they go through the date the time the time of death and i can remember me barrister was questioning some army guy about the wimmick and the speed it can go I know this guy wasn't 100% sure, so my barrister said, well, you better go and take a break and find out, because he was clued up on military law, like very, very clued up. But at that stage, you didn't have the knowledge, did you, that the vehicle was not roadworthy? I think I got a massive pile of papers, like you're talking, like probably loads of stuff that the barrister and solicitor had sought from the MOD. You did, in fact, because the Evening Chronicle reported an army spokesman not even Mm -hmm. man enough to give a name we do understand the distress the waiting can cause a family and sympathize with them however it's not unusual to wait this length of time when a death occurs overseas while a unit is on active operations i'm not sure that they still were after this i don't know but added to that the documents required for the inquest are a complicated package but I cannot comment on them as the details will come out at the inquest. Yeah. Do you think your barrister was having a dry run for taking them on for real? Apparently he'd never lost a case against the military. <laughs> they would know that, surely. They they would see his name and go, oh, no. It was just really kind of the death, accidental death. Wasn't really much in it. I think I felt quite deflated, like, is that it? We've waited all this time. It's not to portion blame on anybody or point the finger or because that's not what it is. But at the start of this, and this is why I took you there, we tried to set out what to expect from an inquest. And yet 
even though you know that, I can still understand why deflation will be the overriding emotion. They're not particularly interesting affairs, are they? And this quote, the documents required for the inquest are a complicated package, but I cannot comment on them as the details will come out at the inquest, is a way of trying to neuter that story on behalf of the, the army. But presumably you or a third party watching on with an interest learnt nothing at the inquest. So remind me, when did you go to Sierra Leone? February 2005. Okay, so we'll talk about that next time. I just make that point because we have mentioned it before, but I just think it's important to know if that is before or after the inquest. Now, they are right to say that it can take time and to make the point that a death has occurred, two deaths have occurred overseas. I wonder what went on, because surely their fact-finding mission has involved some senior people going to Sierra Leone. And I'm going to guess from Julie's first account, which was that, some locals found Michael, put him in a vehicle, and took him to the police station. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So, anybody with any sort of barrister type mind will say, well, straight away the scene is contaminated. We can't know for sure. Contradicted by what Julie learned from the first vehicle in the in the convoy as we've discussed in a previous episode who claimed to return to the scene and claimed mm-hmm. to know within 10 minutes that Michael had been in an accident and i think there are two opposing views here that if you go overseas to conduct an investigation in a place you probably don't know where, oh, where do you start looking for clues? How reliable are your witnesses? Can you really be sure? But the other side of that, the complete opposite of that, because the army, quote, refers to the length of time. My guess is that you go out there once and try and acquire all the information and you come back and make sense of it all. It's not the same as if that had happened in the road outside the barracks in England and then you've got people chipping in and then you're trying to pull CCTV footage and then there's rumours. A cluttered mind can result in getting to the real truth, perhaps difficult. but. Do you not agree that it would follow that for the argument to ring true that it can take time when a death occurs overseas? Well, actually, that doesn't seem to ring true. But what must be true is that they surely went out there almost immediately. They must have gone out there almost immediately. And they're speaking to... Locals, presumably, police staff. It's very, very difficult for them to get an accurate picture, but they would have done so surely in that in, in one visit. I feel confident about that. Don't know how many times they went out. 
I know they were over there straight away, SIB. Because I spoke to them. Special Intelligence Branch. I spoke to them before they even flew Michael's body back. I think I spoke to them the first night, 28th, 29th. And they were there or on the way? or They were there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So does that mean then that somebody local from our forces, somebody in, in Sierra Leone carried out the investigation? I don't know. Because I would consider that would be also quite tough to swallow. I can see the only way that it would work is if somebody local from our armed forces on the ground in Sierra Leone was working with somebody independent who had come in from from the UK. You do have to wait, as Julie found out, when responsibility was finally placed at the Ministry of Defence's door, the best part of a decade later. Sometimes court backlogs, etc., even though this is not a court of law, mean that you can't get in there the next day. But I'm pretty sure that they worked out what happened almost immediately or worked out what they would sow as their narrative as to what had happened, whether or not that is actually true or not. As a marker as to what we might find out in a couple of episodes' time, Can you think of anything at the inquest, albeit we're not there to apportion blame, we're just listing the cause of death. Can you think of anything that might have been papering over the cracks? And I'm thinking that when you finally, 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 best part of a decade later, have the Ministry of Defence revealing the, the whole truth is, is there anything you'd look back at that inquest and go well they really should have and could have said something there and then rather than making you suffer for all those years the mod didn't accept any liability at all for well it was the week before i went to sierra leone 2005 they denied everything denied all knowledge of any negligence and then it still took years to... Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think reading between the lines, from where I'm sitting, it looks like this. You're angry and making a noise. They label you crazy. They, through their actions, isolate you, i.e. people are told not to go to the funeral, not to talk to you. Maybe they think this will die down and this will go away and that you won't see it through. But suddenly, when it looks like all the boxes have been ticked, i.e. we've had the funeral, we've had the inquest, you announce you're going to Sierra Leone, then suddenly it just gets a bit real for them, doesn't it? Only because, and that was because I I was in touch with a, um, a journalist. I've lost touch with her now. You call her Eve. I can't remember her surname. I lost her number when I changed mobile numbers. but. A lovely lady, and I spoke to her on the phone, and she was going to do a documentary about me going to Sierra Leone. 
and we were planning it and we were talking on the phone and everything was going. And then obviously as soon as she let the MOD know that she was going over with me to do, they kind of warned her off and said she wasn't allowed to film on this certain road, on this stretch of road. And she was like, well, it's not military road. It's civilian. So basically, I think it was kind of back and forth like that. And literally a week before we were due to fly out, well, maybe it's a week or two, they accepted like just over 50% liability. Up until that time, they'd never accepted anything. They denied all knowledge of having, well, any liability at all. They didn't want her to go. They didn't want us to do a documentary over in Sierra Leone. Well, the the breathtaking arrogance is clear to see there that the Ministry of Defence believe that they can silence a journalist. Remember, one of the reasons that we we do this, yeah, Brits, you know, we go to countries, sometimes clean up other people's mess, but hey, we do it because we believe in freedom. And one of the things about freedom is the right to protest, we seem to have lost that in the UK. The right to investigate. We back journalists who are truth seekers. We don't silence them. But the breathtaking arrogance to say, in a country that's not ours, you can't film there. Wow. Unless that was inside a British base. I don't think that that would put any journalist off. I think a journalist would think, I need to film there. But something's happened behind the scenes there where I would imagine at a level, as they say, above one's pay grade, some conversation has gone on, which means that the journalist didn't go with you. What often happens in PR and journalism is that when someone is quashed like that or silenced, they are given something in return easy lobs, a couple of other things to, to maybe look at just to take them off the scent from this. But that's extraordinary. Only upon the moment of investigation by a third party, having investigated themselves, only at the point when all roads lead to Sierra Leone do the truth of lies start to unravel. And this time, they're the truths, as much as the lies. So, ahead, that trip to Sierra Leone, and in time, litigation. Next time on Truth of Lies. I had a major fear that if I kind of gave in and grieved the maybe the way I should have, I think there was always a worry that people would think I couldn't cope and maybe they would take Holly away. To find out more, please visit secretsofaghostwriter.com. Truth of Lies is a horny media and publishing production.